0: Just what is critical race theory and what's it doing in a nice field like education by Gloria Latson Billings. Almost five years ago, a colleague and I began a collaboration in which we grappled with the legal scholarship known as critical race theory. So tentative were we about this line of inquiry that we proceeded with extreme caution. We were both untenured and relatively new to our institution. We were unsure of how this new line of inquiry would be received both within our university and throughout the educational research or scholarly community. Our initial step was to hold a colloquium in our department. We were pleasantly surprised to meet with a room filled with colleagues and graduate students who seemed eager to hear our ideas and help us in these new theoretical and conceptual formulations. That initial meeting led to many revisions and iterations. We presented versions of the paper and the ideas surrounding it at conferences and professional meetings. Outside the supportive confines of our own institution, we were met with not only the expected intellectual challenges, but also outright hostility. Why were we focusing only on race? What about gender? Why not class? Are you abandoning multicultural perspectives? By the fall of 1995, our much-discussed paper was published. We have held our collective intellectual breaths for almost a year because, despite the proliferation of critical race scholarship in legal studies, we have seen scant evidence that this work has made any impact on the educational research or scholarly community, thus seeing Critical Race Theory (CRT) as a theme in an educational journal represents our first opportunity to excel race still matters. It had been a good day. My talk as part of the distinguished lecture series at a major research university had gone well. The audience was receptive. The questions were challenging, yet respectful. My colleagues were exceptional hosts. I spent the day sharing ideas and exchanging views on various phases of their work and my own. There had even been the not so subtle hint of a job offer. The warm, almost tropical climate of this university stood in stark contrast to the overly long, brutal winters of my own institution. But it also had been a tiring day. All that smiling, listening with rapt interest to everyone's research, recalling minute details of my own, trying to be witty and simultaneously serious, had taken its toll. I could not wait to get back to the hotel to relax for a few hours before dinner. One of the nice perks that comes with these lecture gigs is a decent hotel. This one was no exception. My accommodations were on the hotel's VIP floor, equipped with special elevator access key and private lounge on the top floor overlooking the city. As I stepped off the elevator, I decided to go into the VIP lounge, read the newspaper, and have a drink. I arrived early, just before the happy hour, and no one else was in the lounge. I took a seat on one of the couches and began catching up on the day's news. Shortly after I sat down comfortably with my newspaper, a white man peeked his head into the lounge, looked at me sitting there in my best, and conservative, dress-for-success outfit, high heels and all, and with a pronounced southern accent asked, What time are y'all gonna be serving? I tell this story both because storytelling is a part of critical race theory and because this particular story underscores an important point within the critical race theoretical paradigm. Race still matters. Despite the scientific refutation of race as a legitimate biological concept and attempts to marginalize race in much of the public political discourse, race continues to be a powerful social construct and signifier. Quote, race has become metaphorical. A way of referring to and disguising forces, events, classes, and expressions of social decay and economic division far more threatening to the body politic than biological race ever was. Expensively kept, economically unsound, a spurious and useless political asset in election campaigns, racism is as healthy today as it was during the enlightenment. It seems that it has a utility far beyond economy beyond the sequestering of classes from one another, and has assumed a metaphorical life so completely embedded in daily discourse that it is perhaps more necessary and more on display than ever before." I am intrigued by the many faces and permutations race has assumed in contemporary society. Our understanding of race has moved beyond the biogenetic categories and notions of phenotype. Our advanced ideas about race include the racialization of multiple cultural forms. Sociologist Sharon Lee suggests that, quote, "...questions of race have been included in all U.S. population censuses since the first one in 1790," end quote. Although racial categories in the U.S. census have fluctuated over time, two categories have remained stable, black and white. And although the creation of the category does not reveal what constitutes membership within it, it does create for us a sense of polar opposites that posits a cultural ranking designed to tell us who is white, or perhaps more pointedly, who is not white." But determining who is and is not white is not merely a project of individual construction and or biological designation. For example, in early census data, citizens of Mexican descent were considered white. Over time, political, economic, social, and cultural shifts have forced Mexican Americans out of the white category. Conversely, Haney Lopez pointed out that some groups came to the United States and brought suit in the courts to be declared white. Ami and Winant argued that the polar notions of race as either an ideological construct or an objective condition both have shortcomings. Thinking of race strictly as an ideological concept denies the reality of a racialized society and its impact on people in their everyday lives. On the other hand, thinking of race solely as an objective condition denies the problematic aspects of race, how to decide who fits into which racial classifications. Our notions of race and its use are so complex that even when it fails to make sense, we continue to employ and deploy it. I want to argue that our conceptions of race, even in a postmodern and or postcolonial world, are more embedded and fixed than in a previous age. However, this embeddedness or fixedness has required new language and constructions of race so that denotations are submerged and hidden in ways that are offensive without identification. Thus, we develop notions of conceptual whiteness and conceptual blackness that both do and do not map neatly onto biogenetic or cultural allegiances. School achievement, middle-classness, maleness, beauty, intelligence, science become normative categories of whiteness whereas gangs, welfare recipients, basketball players, the underclass become the marginalized and delegitimated categories of blackness. The creation of these conceptual categories is not designed to reify a binary, but rather to suggest how in a racialized society where whiteness is positioned as normative, everyone is ranked and categorized in relation to these points of opposition. These categories fundamentally sculpt the extant terrain of possibilities even when other possibilities exist. And although there is a fixedness to the notion of these categories, the ways in which they actually operate are fluid and shifting. For example, as an African-American female academic, I can be and am sometimes positioned as conceptually white in relation to, perhaps, a Latino, Spanish-speaking gardener. In that instance, my class and social position override my racial identification, and for that moment, I become white. The significance of race need not be debated at length in this chapter, but as Toni Morrison argues, race is always already present in every social configuring of our lives. Rodiger asserts, quote, even in an all-white town, race was never absent, end quote. However, more significant or problematic than the omnipresence of race is the notion that, quote, whites reach the conclusion that their whiteness is meaningful, end quote. It is because of the meaning and value imputed to whiteness that CRT becomes an important intellectual and social tool for deconstruction reconstruction and construction, deconstruction of oppressive structures and discourses, reconstruction of human agency, and construction of equitable and socially just relations of power. In this chapter, I am attempting to speak to innovative theoretical ways for framing discussions about social justice and democracy and the role of education in reproducing or interrupting current practices. I will provide a brief synopsis of critical race theory and discuss some of its prominent themes. Then I will discuss its importance to our understanding of the citizen in a democracy and its relationship to education. And finally, I will offer some cautionary implications for further research and study. As is true of all texts, this one is incomplete. It is incomplete on the part of both the writer and the reader. However, given its incompleteness, I implore readers to grapple with how it might advance the debate on race and education. What is Critical Race Theory? Most people in the United States first learned of critical race theory, CRT, when Lanny Guinier, a University of Pennsylvania law professor, became a political casualty of the Clinton administration. Her legal writings were the focus of much scrutiny in the media. Unschooled and unsophisticated about the nature of legal academic writing, the media vilified Guinier and accused her of advocating un-American ideas. The primary focus of the scorn shown Guinier was her argument for proportional representation. Gagné asserted that in electoral situations where particular racial groups were a clear and persistent minority, the only possibility for an equitable chance at social benefits and fair political representation might be for minority votes to count for more than their actual numbers. Gagné first proposed such a strategy as a solution for a post-apartheid South Africa. Because whites are in the obvious minority, the only way for them to participate in the governing of a new South Africa would be to ensure them some seats in the newly formed government. Gagné made a similar argument in favor of African Americans in the United States. Unfortunately, her political opponents attacked her scholarship as an affront to the American tradition of one person, one vote. The furor over Gagné's work obscured the fact that as an academic, Gagné was expected to write cutting-edge scholarship that pushed theoretical boundaries. Her work was not to be literally applied to legal practice. However, in the broad scope of critical race legal studies, Gagné may be seen as relatively moderate and nowhere near the radical that the press made her out to be, but her exposure placed critical race theory and its proponents in the midst of the public discourse. According to Delgado, quote, critical race theory sprang up in the mid-1970s with the early work of Derrick Bell, an African-American, and Alan Freeman, a white, both of whom were deeply distressed over the slow pace of racial reform in the United States, End quote. They argued that the traditional approaches of filing amicus briefs, protests, marching, and appealing to the moral sensibilities of decent citizens produced smaller and fewer gains than in previous times. Before long, they were being joined by other legal scholars who shared their frustration with traditional civil rights strategies. CRT is both an outgrowth of and separate entity from an earlier legal movement called Critical Legal Studies, CLS. Critical legal studies is a leftist legal movement that challenged the traditional legal scholarship that focused on doctrinal and policy analysis in favor of a form of law that spoke to the specificity of individuals and groups in social and cultural contexts. CLS scholars also challenged the notion that, quote, the civil rights struggle represents a long, steady march towards social transformation, end quote. According to Crenshaw, quote, critical legal scholars have attempted to analyze legal ideology and discourse as a social artifact which operates to recreate and legitimate American society, end quote. Scholars in the CLS movement decipher legal doctrine to expose both its internal and external inconsistencies and to reveal the ways that, quote, legal ideology has helped create, support, and legitimate America's present class structure, end quote. The contribution of CLS to legal discourse is in its analysis of legitimating structures in the society, much of the CLS ideology emanates from the work of Gramsci and depends on the Gramscian notion of hegemony to describe the continued legitimacy of oppressive structures in American society. However, CLS fails to provide pragmatic strategies for material social transformation. Cornell West asserts quote, critical legal theorists fundamentally question the dominant liberal paradigms prevalent and pervasive in American culture and society. This thorough questioning is not primarily a constructive attempt to put forward a conception of a new legal and social order. Rather, it is a pronounced disclosure of inconsistencies, incoherences, silences, and blindness of legal formalists, legal positivists, and legal realists in the liberal tradition. Critical legal studies is more a concerted attack and assault on the legitimacy and authority of pedagogical strategies in law school than a comprehensive announcement of what a credible and realizable new society and legal system would look like, End quote. CLS scholars critiqued mainstream legal ideology for its portrayal of U.S. society as a meritocracy, but failed to include racism in its critique. Thus, CRT became a logical outgrowth of the discontent of legal scholars of color. CRT begins with the notion that racism is, quote, normal, not apparent in American society, end quote. And because it is so enmeshed in the fabric of our social order, it appears both normal and natural to people in this culture. Indeed, Bell's major premise in Faces at the Bottom of the Well is that racism is a permanent fixture of American life. Thus, the strategy becomes one of unmasking and exposing racism in its various permutations. Second, CRT departs from mainstream legal scholarship by sometimes employing storytelling to quote, analyze the myths, presuppositions, and received wisdoms that make up the common culture about race and that invariably render blacks and other minorities one down, end quote. According to Barnes, Critical race theorists integrate their experiential knowledge, drawn from a shared history as other, with their ongoing struggles to transform a world deteriorating under the albatross of racial hegemony. Thus, the experience of oppression such as racism or sexism is important for developing a CRT analytical standpoint. To the extent that whites, or in the case of sexism, men, experience forms of racial oppression, they may develop such a standpoint. For example, the historical figure John Brown suffered aspects of racism by aligning himself closely with the cause of African-American liberation. Contemporary examples of such identification may occur when white parents adopt transracially. No longer a white family by virtue of their children, they become racialized others. A final example was played out in the infamous O.J. Simpson trials. The criminal trial jury was repeatedly identified as the black jury despite the presence of one white and one Latino juror. However, the majority white civil case jury was not given a racial designation. When whites are exempted from racial designations and become families, jurors, students, teachers, etc., their ability to apply a CRT analytical rubric is limited. One of the most dramatic examples of the shift from non raced to CRT perspective occurred when Gregory Williams moved from Virginia, where he was a white boy, to Muncie, Indiana, where his family was known to be black. The changes in his economic and social status were remarkable, and the story he tells underscores the salience of race in life's possibilities. The primary reason this story is deemed important among CRT scholars is that it adds necessary contextual contours to the seeming objectivity of positivist perspectives. Third, CRT insists on a critique of liberalism. Crenshaw argues that the liberal perspective of the, quote, civil rights crusade as a long, slow, but always upward pull, end quote, is flawed because it fails to understand the limits of current legal paradigms to serve as catalysts for social change and because of its emphasis on incrementalism. CRT argues that racism requires sweeping changes, but liberalism has no mechanism for such changes. Rather, liberal legal practices support the painstakingly slow process of arguing legal precedents to gain citizen rights for people of color. Fourth, and related to the liberal perspective, is the argument posed by CRT that whites have been the primary beneficiaries of civil rights legislation. For example, although under attack throughout the nation, the policy of affirmative action has benefited whites. The actual numbers reveal that the major recipients of affirmative action hiring policies have been white women. One might argue that many of these white women have incomes that support households in which other whites live, men, women, and children. The ability of these women to find work ultimately benefits whites in general. Let us look at some of the social benefits African Americans have received due to affirmative action policies. Even after 20 years of affirmative action, African Americans constitute only 4.5% of the professorate. In 1991, there were 24,721 doctoral degrees awarded to U.S. citizens and non-citizens who intended to remain in the United States, and only 933 or 3.8% of these doctorates went to African American men and women. If every one of those newly minted doctorates went into the academy, it would have a negligible effect on the proportion of African Americans in the professorate. The majority of the African Americans who earn PhDs earn them in the field of education, and of that group, most of the degrees are in educational administration, where the recipients continue as school practitioners. Thus, CRT theorists cite this kind of empirical evidence to support their contention that civil rights laws continue to serve the interests of whites. A more fruitful tack, some CRT scholars argue, is to find the place where the interests of whites and people of color intersect. This notion of interest convergence can be seen in what transpired in Arizona over the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday commemoration. Originally, the state of Arizona insisted that the King holiday was too costly and failed to recognize it for state workers and agencies. Subsequently, a variety of African American groups and their supporters began to boycott businesses, professional, and social functions in the state of Arizona. When members of the National Basketball Association and the National Football League suggested that neither the NBA All-Star Game nor the Super Bowl would be held in Arizona because of the state's failure to recognize the King holiday, the decision was reversed. Hardly anyone is naive enough to believe that the governor of Arizona had a change of heart about the significance of the King holiday. Rather, when his position on the holiday had the effect of hurting state tourists and sports entertainment revenues, the state's interests to enhance revenue converged with those of the African-American community to recognize Dr. King. Thus, converging interests, not supportive civil rights, led to the reversal of the state's position. A recent compilation of CRT key writings points out that there is no, quote, canonical set of doctrines or methodologies to which CRT scholars all subscribe, end quote. However, these scholars are unified by two common interests, to understand how a, quote, regimen of white supremacy and its subordination of people of color have been created and maintained in America, end quote, and to change the bond that exists between law and racial power. Legal scholars such as Patricia Williams and Derrick Bell were among the early critical race theorists whose ideas reached the general public. Some might argue that their wide appeal was the result of their abilities to tell compelling stories into which they embedded legal issues. This use of story is of particular interest to educators because of the growing popularity of narrative and narrative inquiry in the study of teaching. But just because more people are recognizing and using story as a part of scholarly inquiry, it does not mean that all stories are received as legitimate in knowledge construction and advancement of a discipline. Lawrence asserts that there is a tradition of storytelling in law and that litigation is highly formalized storytelling. The stories of ordinary people, in general, have not been told or recorded in the literature of law or any other discipline. But their failure to make it into the canons of literature or research does not make them less important stories. Stories provide the necessary context for understanding, feeling, and interpreting. The ahistorical and acontextual nature of much law and other science renders the voices of dispossessed and marginalized group members mute. Much of the scholarship of CRT focuses on the role of voice to bring additional power to legal discourse involving racial justice. Delgado argues that people of color speak with experiential knowledge that our society is deeply structured by racism. That structure gives their stories a common framework warranting the term voice. Critical race theorists are attempting to interject minority cultural viewpoints derived from a common history of oppression with their efforts to reconstruct a society crumbling under the burden of racial hegemony. The use of voice or naming a reality is a way that CRT links form and substance in scholarship. CRT scholars use parables, chronicles, stories, counterstories, poetry, fiction, and revisionist histories to illustrate the false necessity and irony of much of current civil rights doctrine. Delgado suggests that there are at least three reasons for naming one's own reality in legal discourse. 1. Much of reality is socially constructed. 2. Stories provide members of outgroups a vehicle for psychic self-preservation. And... Three, the exchange of stories from teller to listener can help overcome ethnocentrism and the disconscious conviction of viewing the world in one way. The first reason for naming one's own reality involves how political and moral analysis is conducted in legal scholarship. Many mainstream legal scholars embrace universalism over particularity. According to Williams, theoretical legal understanding is characterized in Anglo-American jurisprudence by the acceptance of transcendent, acontextual, universal legal truths or procedures. For instance, some legal scholars might contend that the tort of fraud has always existed and that it is a component belonging to the universal system of right and wrong. This worldview tends to discount anything that is non-transcendent, historical, or contextual, socially constructed, or non-universal, specific, with the unscholarly labels of emotional, literary, personal, or false. In contrast, critical race theorists argue that political and moral analysis is situational, Truths only exist for this person, in this predicament, at this time in history." For the critical race theorist, social reality is constructed by the formulation and the exchange of stories about individual situations. These stories serve as interpretive structures by which we impose order on experience and experience imposes order on us. A second reason for the naming one's own reality theme of CRT is the psychic preservation of marginalized groups. A factor contributing to the demoralization of marginalized groups is self-condemnation. Members of minority groups internalize the stereotypic images that certain elements of society have constructed in order to maintain their power. Historically, storytelling has been a kind of medicine to heal the wounds of pain caused by racial oppression. The story of one's condition leads to the realization of how one came to be oppressed and subjugated, thus allowing one to stop inflicting mental violence on oneself. Finally, naming one's own reality with stories can affect the oppressor. Most oppression, as was discussed earlier, does not seem like oppression to the perpetrator. Delgado argues that the dominant group justifies its power with stories, stock explanations that construct reality in ways to maintain their privilege. Thus, oppression is rationalized, causing little self-examination by the oppressor. Stories by people of color can catalyze the necessary cognitive conflict to jar racism. The voice component of CRT provides a way to communicate the experience and realities of the oppressed, a first step in understanding the complexities of racism and beginning a process of judicial redress. The voice of people of color is required for a deep understanding of the educational system. Delpit argues that one of the tragedies of the field of education is how the dialogue of people of color has been silenced. Delpit begins her analysis of the process-oriented versus the skills-oriented writing debate with a statement or story from an African-American male graduate student at a predominantly white university who is also a special education teacher in an African-American community. Quote, There comes a moment in every class where we have to discuss the black issue and what's appropriate education for black children. I tell you, I'm tired of arguing with those white people because they won't listen. Well, I don't know if they really don't listen or if they just don't believe you. It seems like if you can't quote Vygotsky or something, then you don't have any validity to speak about your own kids. Anyway, I'm not bothering with it anymore. Now I'm just in it for a grade." The above comment and numerous other statements found in Delpit's analysis illustrate the frustration of teachers of color caused by being left out of the dialogue about how best to educate children of color. Further, Delpit raises several very important questions. Quote, How can such complete communication blocks exist when both parties, blacks and whites, truly believe they have the same aims? How can the bitterness and resentment expressed by educators of color be drained so that all sores can heal? What can be done? End quote.